Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Welcome to the Siren Coffee and Science. I'm Manal Patel, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Behavior and Health Education at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. This is the fifth of the Coffee and Science conversations exploring the topic of awareness. And as a reminder, this includes the many ways healthcare systems incorporate activities to understand patients' social circumstances, one of which is asking patients at the point of care about things like financial security. And I'm really thrilled to have the opportunity today to talk with Dr. Amelia DeMarcus, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. And she's also a family physician and a member of the SIREN research team. In today's conversation, Dr. DeMarcus and I will explore differences between conducting social screening and assessing patients' interest in receiving assistance related to social needs. And in starting to think about interventions, we're also setting up the next phase of the Coffee and Science series, which from mid-April through June will focus on assistance interventions, or ways that healthcare systems are intervening by trying to address patients' social needs. So I have my coffee and my lovely siren mug, and I'm really excited to dive right into this. Dr. DeMarcus, you're really trailblazing in this area. I'm really thrilled to talk to you today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, and it's a, a pleasure to talk with you, Dr. Patel. I know we've had a lot of overlapping work and interests, so it's it's great to have the chance to to chat like this. There's just so much for us to discuss. So Dr. Laura Gottlieb and Hugh Alderwick wrote a piece that many of us look at all the time now on differentiating social determinants of health, social risk, and social needs. And our conversation today is really focused on social needs. So why does this differentiation matter when we also want to understand interest in receiving assistance? I love that piece from the Millbank Quarterly and, and do reference it and refer to it all the time with social risks being really focused on the uh, specifying the adverse social determinants of health that we we are so interested in. So people's uh, housing instability, their food insecurity, and the needs really being the patient-centered approach. So do patients regardless of how they screen on a social risk screening tool, do they actually think that they have a need, which I think is so important in understanding patient interest and assistance, and then just thinking about how the healthcare team can best uh, help assist our patients. Because if they screen positive on a screening tool and, and don't want assistance, that can be for a, a host of reasons. And one of them being like, do they actually think that they need or want assistance? Do they have a need? So I think being clear about the language and what we're referring to is is really helpful in this area. Absolutely. It's really understanding the patient perspective when we're thinking about needs. Yeah. I completely agree with that. Yeah. So you recently wrote a really wonderful commentary highlighting several studies showing differences between a positive risk screen and a desire for assistance. And namely that only a small proportion of patients actually want assistance. 
I find this really perplexing given how much investment is being put into integrating medical and social care. So I'd just love to understand what are some of the reasons that you think explain this low uptake? Yeah, I think it's definitely multifactorial. And it's it's one exciting that more of these studies are coming out. And it is interesting that there's such a range of what people are finding. As we just talked about, I think one being like, do people actually think that they have a need regardless of, of the results of a screening tool? Do they want assistance? And then it gets also into the like what types of assistance is offered. So different studies are offering different forms of assistance to patients. And so patients may have had experiences with certain types and that can influence whether or not they want assistance. And then I think it's also really important to think about how different studies are actually measuring interest and uptake, whether it's just asking them like right after screening tool, do you want assistance, not necessarily specifying what type versus if you're actually looking at, did they get assistance? What is the uptake as kind of a proxy for were they interested in getting or not? And I often like to think of it in like the implementation science, like HIV treatment cascade, which I I won't bore people of all the details, but so we have like these patients with risks we may identify, and then do they think that they have a need? Then do they accept a referral or not, which can vary based on, again, their experiences with the healthcare team, trust, whether or not they've had experience social services in the past, and then all the way down to, are they able to like go to a community resource and then do they get assistance? So how and where along that cascade of seeking assistance, it's measured, really has an impact as well. And so different studies are measuring interest in assistance and uptake in different ways with different resources. And then I think all of the patient factors, many of which have been brought up in prior discussions about the factors like trust, patient priorities, damage done around public charge, whether or not patients want assistance, concerns about stigma. Really loved Dr. Peaks and Dr. Ajay's discussion on impact of how historical and current racism and discrimination can impact this work. So many, many, many different things. And it's exciting for us to learn more. We did do a study that Dr. Lena Byhoff mentioned a couple weeks ago where a multi-site study where we were screening patients for social risks on the kind of a health communities tool and then asked them actually about their interest in assistance. And we did find similar to some of the rates of the prior work people are finding that over 50% of people who did report having at least one of five social risk factors screened for were interested in assistance. And almost 9% who had screened negative on the screening tool still also wanted assistance. And we were able to do some some analyses just on the quantitative data and some things that made people have higher odds of being interested in assistance were things like being actually asked about interest in assistance before they were even screened for the social risk factors. So asking them first versus asking them afterwards. Screening positive for more social risks, which is not surprising. Similarly, reporting lower income self-identifying as non-Hispanic Black, and those who screen negative had higher odds of being interested in assistance if, again, lower income, if they'd been screened before in healthcare for social risk factors, which I think is interesting. And we may see that as screening becomes more common, so does interest in assistance. And then not surprisingly, if they thought screening was more appropriate, they were more interested. And also those who reported poorer health. 
we can dive more into that, but I'm also really interested in, in hearing more about your work in this realm and your findings. And Siren has, as you know well, funded a number of studies to evaluate this work, and you're one of the, the grantees. So we'd love to hear more about your experience, what you're finding and thinking about this. Absolutely. I'm really fortunate that Siren put out this call for proposals to really tease out this area. So I'm one of the grantees and working with Dr. Alicia Cohen from Brown University. We're looking at data as part of one of my larger funded studies by NIDDK called the Care Avenue Study. And Care Avenue is essentially a web-based platform that is having people with uncontrolled diabetes actually self-screen for social risks. And then it has them navigate a set of resources that map onto those social risks that they have identified as social needs. So going back to what you're saying, we're, we're taking that extra step and actually asking them, do you want resources for any of these needs? And we also end up showing them a series of videos to boost their confidence around self-navigation to really show them that it, it doesn't have to be complicated there are ways to navigate these resources and seek assistance from people on the care team. And we're evaluating this in an RCT with a control group that's being given contact information for an in-person resource through the health system, which is a set of social workers. And through our surveys and through Care Avenue, we're asking participants what social risks they would like more information about. That's really how we're addressing this idea of social needs. So we're like halfway through our trial and starting to look at trends in our data. But I have to say, after reading your commentary, I think a lot of what you're hypothesizing in that commentary is really coming out in our data. So just last week, I was running some descriptives, um, understanding resource use in this population. And in this health system population with uncontrolled diabetes, we actually found that resource use is already really high in this sample. I was just so mm -hmm. surprised that it was almost 70% plus for almost every resource. Yeah. Um, and we're also in our interviews that we're looking at through our funding from Siren, we're really finding a lot of the similar reasons you laid out in your commentary around why people um, seek out resources and why they don't. So we're still analyzing our data, but some of the things I'm seeing are that People who do follow up recognize a need for themselves or they're just curious and want help with it. Some folks really like that Care Avenue is a bit of a one-stop shop and they don't have to go to a lot of different places for essential social needs around addressing diabetes. But then when we think about people who don't follow up, we're, we're sort of seeing these same reasons you outlined in your commentary, like they don't view themselves as needing help. They feel like they don't qualify. They're they already connected to resources, or just you know not interested in government help. So I definitely think you're onto something, and I I'm really excited to merge what we're starting to see with all the other grantee data to yeah. really tease out the evidence in this area. Yeah, that's super exciting. These early findings, and we'll be interested to see how many people before watching kind of those vi videos that you refer to thought they weren't eligible or thought that they didn't qualify. Because some of the studies that have followed people through different time points of screening have found that eligibility is a huge, huge issue. So people get referred, but they may not be eligible for the resource. 
And it'll be interesting to, to hear more about what people have to say about their experiences getting assistance. Because I think partnering with community resources, helping facilitate those transitions to getting assistance are so, so important so that making these referrals or providing assistance doesn't become like another bad experience that patients have, that we can actually work together. And as Dr. Stacy Lindau refers to as kind of the assets, patients and communities kind of really pull out those assets and combine forces for success and sustainability. Absolutely. And so when thinking about the projects Siren is trying to fund, they're really diverse. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you're, you're pointing out some critical areas where this connection to resources really starts to break down. So I'm just curious, what types of evidence, evidence gaps do you hope these projects start to uncover? Yeah, a lot of them, uh, since I think there are so many still open questions. One, I've just been really interested, kind of not necessarily an evidence gap, but just seeing how the different research teams are thinking about interest and assistance, how they're measuring it, and then really hoping to get more insight into what patients think is the role of the healthcare team in providing them with assistance. What do patients want from the healthcare system? What don't they want and why? How we can increase comfort, reduce concerns about stigma and getting assistance in it addition to the screening itself, and really how to build trust into these discussions and how to facilitate providing assistance and best partnering with the community. A lot of things around implementation approaches that we don't yet know and uh, hoping that we can use these studies to really learn from and test out different implementation approaches since it's likely not a one-size-fits-all approach. I'm really excited to see what people are finding and see more what Care Avenue is finding. Yeah, and there's a question in the chat that's really relevant to the point that we're on. In the elder population, technology will continue to be a barrier to access. Uh, One of our participants is wondering whether we really need a high-touch method to ensure access and acceptance for older people, but as well as other populations where technology might be a barrier. Yeah, I think it's a huge issue and likely not one that we'll ever fully overcome. I think it is true that we will need different approaches for different patient populations. And also different healthcare settings have different resources to start. As I mentioned, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all approach. So there may be some patients who do just need a resource list. They do just need to be pointed in the right direction, and that's all that they want, um, versus our patients who have potentially more comorbidities, lower health education, English might not be their first language and resources may not be equipped to or have everything in in different languages. I actually always remember a a patient of mine who I think I spent one clinic visit just calling community resources for him because he didn't feel comfortable with his Spanish making those phone calls on his own. So I think we'll have to have different approaches and different ways to support patients. and, And that's what we really need to find out how best to do this and best use the assets that are already out there to partner so that we can make this a sustainable practice. I'd love to know your thoughts as well and what you're finding with patients' abilities to use Care Avenue, if you're finding any kind of hurdles there. So just from some of our acceptability data, what we're starting to see in the qualitative interviews, you sort of see a couple different camps. Some people find it really easy and really like it because it was built at a low literacy level. Mm -hmm. And then there are others who prefer to just Google stuff. They, they, they tell us, I would rather just Google things and that's my mm-hmm. method, that's my way of finding. 
resources. So it seems like some people have their their preferred methods of, of going about this. Others find it helpful and easy. So I think it'll be really exciting to, you know, really look at moderators. So for whom do these approaches work for and who doesn't it? And we can then think about more tailored options in actual practice. Yeah. And it might be that there are ways to increase comfort with using more uh, devices and technology, even in our older patients and patients who may not have those resources. There are some studies where they've tried to like put in a computer within the clinic itself to kind of be a resource for patients with, with varying success. And I think there are just more implementation approaches that we need to explore and how to how to best meet patients where they're at. Absolutely. So what do you think about in terms of intervention? So when you think about all the reasons people might not uptake resources that you highlighted in your commentary, what, what do you think about in terms of intervention that we might want to consider to really support patient interests? Obviously, in the absence of evidence, that's a, a yeah. little challenging. But what are you what are you sort of thinking preliminarily in this area? I think uh, we need to think about patient factors and understand those better. But I think also the implementation and support for staffing and clinicians on the ground, uh, because if they don't have buy-in, if they don't feel like they have the time to dedicate to this, or if it's overly burdensome, then patients won't have the opportunity to uptake. So making it uh, really kind of talking with the staff on the ground and finding out ways to integrate this assistance within their existing workflow and make it less of a burden on them, I think is really important to think about with all our interventions. And again, that's going to vary by clinic or health system resources, assets that they already have. And then on the patient side, I think interventions really do need to be very patient-centered, and it's it's likely not going to be a one workflow for every single patient that they meet. So having some flexibility and a really empathic approach to delivering the resources and partnering with communities if they're not providing all of the resources, assuming the healthcare team isn't suddenly able to do everything on, on their own, which I think is unlikely in any system. So really having those partnerships set up and framing the assistance in a way so patients can understand why this is happening, if and how it might be helpful to them, if they're already getting resources or if they've had bad experiences in the past. And I do think we need to still better understand where our patients are coming from and what they want um, within these interventions. And Jennifer DeVoe wrote a really nice commentary in response yeah. to your commentary and brought up an interesting point about whether healthcare teams should be investing more time and energy into designing effective interventions to encourage all patients to accept health. And Care Avenue is sort of doing this. Like our videos are really aimed at showing people that it doesn't have to be a hard process. And we try to role model to people ways that they can make it easy. And it's theoretically informed based on social cognitive theory and um, observational learning. But in my mind, that's a little different than these sort of deeper rooted beliefs around accepting health. So yeah. what do you what do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's so important to think about. And I think it could also be daunting to healthcare systems to think about having to 
assist every single patient who walks through the door. And so I think we do also need to understand who who will benefit from assistance the most and how and how we're delivering assistance and we're not worsening kind of health equity by having certain types of patients be more interested in assistance versus not. So I think that's really important in thinking about and designing interventions. And I do think it's important to educate patients. And in some ways, I think we still need to educate ourselves on how to, how to assist them and build the evidence case and the, unfortunately, kind of the ROI case as well for, for doing this within healthcare. But I do think that patients have a fairly good understanding of how their stressors and their risks impact their health, but finding a way to partner with them. I think we can actually take a lot from what we already do every day in healthcare with our motivational interviewing, health education, talking with patients about their disease states and how it impacts their health and how how we can assist them, I think translates really nicely also to their social risks as well. But we do need to know best still how to assist them with, within healthcare and what is is feasible to do within healthcare and, and how we can partner with with those resources already out there and those people who likely within social services have been doing this work for for much longer and and that we can learn from. Yeah, and I love that you brought up motivational interviewing. In the first podcast series, Stacey Lindo, she brought up the discussion of assets, which is really important alongside sensitive and complicated discussion around social risks and social needs. And, you know, this idea of assets really resonated with me in thinking about establishing this comfortable environment to support the uptake of resources Mm -hmm. when people are hesitant. So, you know, in my mind, motivational interviewing just maps so perfectly on top of that. I agree. And it's, I think a lot of times we think of social risks and the social integration within healthcare is like different from the healthcare we're always providing. So I I think it's really important to think also about the like healthcare assets. What do what do we already know? What are we what are we doing every day in different contexts, and how can we translate this into integration of social care with, within medicine? And people are already doing this work every day as well within their day to day patient care. So how can we facilitate that? Make it more sustainable. Make it more kind of routine and accessible to to all patients because there are likely a lot of patients that we're missing and we're not aware of of their risks and not aware of their needs and and how we can improve their health through assisting them in that way. So have you found in your studies, if there's a difference geographically in stigma, showing that there's a difference between urban versus rural areas with regards to stigma and uptake of resources? I have not, not that I am aware of in terms of um, a study doing a comparative analysis or or seeing any specific trends. I think as we have more studies coming out, it'll be exciting to see if do seem to be some differences, but this is a, a ripe area for further exploration. And I think it uh, will be exciting to see. Uh, I think most of the studies being done right now are traditionally in kind of those urban academic settings. And then it's very likely that there are differences in kind of patient experiences, but likely a lot of similarities as well. And hopefully the SIREN grantee program, some of those studies might shed light out to that question as well. Yeah. Yeah. There is a diverse geographical setting there. So it'll be very, very exciting. Is there any evidence showing that a provider, whether it's a physician, um, nurse practitioner or a nurse, recommending or introducing resources for social needs is more effective 
than other clinic staff in terms of thinking about uptake. So the person presenting it, does that matter? I do actually think there was a study that recently came out that now I'm not remembering, but I will try to find and maybe we can respond to this post-discussion um, that was finding that when kind of it came from a clinician, there was some increase in patient interest. More to explore there. We had in our kind of multi-site study that I referenced previously, we did find in our qualitative work that patients were less concerned about who was delivering screening and talking to them more about making sure it was done in a patient-centered and empathic approach. So I think there are different things to think about in that if there is someone who's highly trained, not necessarily a clinician in healthcare, but to talk to patients about it, perhaps that's another important factor than having the clinician degree behind them. But it it may be that patients do often want to talk to their clinicians about these kinds of things. The take home for me was there's just a lot to do in this area yeah. and a lot for us to understand and just a really critical area that we need more evidence around, given that there's so much investment in social care intervention. Really excited to see more that comes out in this area. You're providing us your commentary and the work you're putting out, some good steps for others to build on. So thanks again for all your work. That's all we have time for today. And I want to express my gratitude to Amelia for her insights and thank all of our listeners for joining us today. I have two quick announcements. First, in response to audience interest, we're organizing a special awareness after party on Friday, April 2nd at our usual coffee and science time. And the special guest will be Dr. Eric Fliegler, who will be available to take questions from participants on all themes under um, the awareness umbrella. And the session will be moderated by Siren Director, Dr. Laura Gottlieb. We'd love for you to just come ready to chat about social risk screening and other awareness strategies. And our second announcement is that our first assistance session will be on April 9th, and it will feature Dr. Nadia Islam and Maria Lamus, who will explore community health workers' role in delivering social care interventions. So thanks so much, everyone. Hope you have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurélien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produce the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.